I think a few of you in the room or a few of you listening or watching online today are coming out of your Christmas season and it feels like you're, you, need to, you need to pull abruptly out of it all. But the way that many of us are living our lives and the way that we're making our decisions are in fact flying straight down into the ground below. And this story that Jesus has for us today is meant to so abruptly turn our whole worldview, our whole perspective upside down that many of us, if we listen to Jesus and we do what he says, it's going to look like we're going to drive our lives right into the ground. And we say, Jesus, why would you want me to live that way? Why would you want me to drive my life right into the ground that way? Why would you want me to sacrifice that way? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're upside down the whole time. Now we're pulling up. I'm showing you how to pull up and out of it this entire time. So let's go to this story. It's found in Luke chapter 16. Uh, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, you are welcomed to do that as well. This story, by the way, is so scandalous that in the fourth century, so a few hundred years after the time of Jesus, as the, move, the Jesus movement is like really, really blossoming and really like, like catching fire and moving all throughout the Roman Empire, um, there were some, uh, some skeptics and some naysayers who were trying to, to stamp out the Jesus movement, pointed to this story that Jesus told and say, see, see, the followers of Jesus are nothing but a bunch of liars and thieves and corrupt individuals because that is who is at the center of their belief system is somebody who would teach a story, Jesus, who is a liar, who is a thief, and who is such a corrupt individual. After all, who else could possibly do a teaching like this? I mean, this story just rocked the world for those early followers of Jesus. And I think once we put it together, we're going to have that same kind of reaction to say, wow, why in the world would Jesus teach such a bizarre, twisted story? like this one. All right, it starts off in, in verse one. It says, Jesus now told his disciples, it was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, there's two key players in the story. There's a rich guy. He probably lived in a small village with maybe a few hundred people in it, maybe 100 people, maybe less. It's not a huge metropolis. That's important for the story. The, the wealthy individual probably owned a huge deal of land, and he would kind of contract it out or sublease out some of that land to farmers who would work the land and who would pay him back little by little all throughout the term of the contract. Well, he had a money manager that was in charge of buying things that were needed for the upkeep of the property or the business. And this money manager, turns out, is wasting some of this money. So he's got some reports that are coming in and saying, listen, your business, owner, your business is your business and I don't want to tell you how to run your business. But I know you and I know how your manager has been spending your money. And it just doesn't seem like you would want your money spent like that. And he thought, well, that's kind of strange that somebody would give a give a funny report like that until the second one. And then the third. And then the fourth guy who comes up to him and says, listen, your business is your business. You run it however you want. But it just doesn't seem like you're the one making these purchases, making these decisions. So then he decides, okay, enough is enough. I got to do something. It doesn't matter how long this guy has been my money manager, has been my business manager. A change is needed. So in verse two, this is what we see. So the owner now called him in and asked him, Hey, what's this I, uh, I hear about you? 
And he has two questions, or two things now. Number one, give an account of your management. And then two, because you cannot be manager any longer. So essentially, he fires the guy and says, you're no longer going to be my manager, except for I'm not firing you today. I'm like firing you next weekend. Go home, clean up the books a little bit, put one finalized summation on everything, and then come and bring it back to me. Now, this story is exactly the reason why we don't fire people like next week sometime because it gives us huge opportunity for shrewd individuals like this one to really exploit the generosity of the owner. He's fired, but not yet. Nobody critical to the story. Nobody except he and the owner knows that he's fired. And this guy realized, I got to make some quick decision making here. I got to do something in order to be set up for whatever comes next. So this is what happens in verse 3. The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. There's probably an accountant joke in there somewhere, but I'm not going to make it because uh, there's a lot of accountants that go here, and I heard about it at uh, 915. Uh, I'm not strong enough to dig, the manager says. I'm ashamed to beg I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, before we get into the plan, when he says, I know what I do, I know what my plan will be so that people will let me into their houses, he's not talking about what to do in order to get a dinner invitation. He's not talking about what am I going to do so that, you know, people will have me stay with them or have put me up for a little while. He's talking about getting another job. Most, house, or most businesses in that day were run by households. This household, a family, tra- a family trade would be like blacksmithing or be like farming of a certain thing. So he's talking about being welcomed into another's house. He's talking about getting welcomed into and having another job. He needs to express some favors for some people now so that they can remember it when he is inevitably on the job hunt later on. And this is the plan that he comes up with. And I do not recommend this in your business practices. If you ever have the opportunity, listen, this is the whole reason why Those uh, skeptics and those naysayers trying to stamp out the Jesus movement called Jesus a liar, a thief, a corrupt individual, and and the followers are are no better better off than he is. This story on on the surface level makes no sense at all. It, It seems like Jesus is imploring us to just drive our lives straight into the ground at a 90 degree angle. But listen, listen to what he says. Okay, this is the manager now. This is the plan he comes up with. So... He called in, verse 5, each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, 900 gallons of olive oil, which is a lot of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Now that's a huge, that's just substantial savings. And if you might be asking yourself, like, why in the world, where in the world would anybody come up with something like 900 gallons of olive oil? I mean, that's a massive amount. Well, again, it probably wasn't the case that it would be paid all at once from one year's crop. I mean, they probably didn't have the technology to haul in that much in, in, a, little, in a little farm like this. But instead, it was probably the case that this was the entire sum total, the, the outstanding balance of the lease for however long the term was that he would be renting this 
property or purchasing this property from the owner. It's like going into getting a small business loan for about a million bucks to start this thing off right. And then you sit down with one of the bankers one time, one of the lower level people, not the one whose money it is necessarily, but, but you sit down and the guy says, hey, instead of giving me a million bucks, Instead of paying a million bucks a little bit over a long period of time, why don't you put in a half a million dollars? And it's like, whoa, you're basically gifting me half of the startup cost of this business. What a tremendous gift. And of course, as he walks out of that meeting, the guy who's just been forgiven this massive amount of money, he doesn't just walk out. He kind of like just floats out of that meeting because he just came into a windfall of a lifetime. And those numbers are actually quite accurate that I just gave you. 900 gallons cut by 450, cut in half. That half that he wrote it down was about a half a million dollars. Incredible. And of course, of course, it's never a bad thing to be the guy, the messenger, who's bringing the good news like that. It's like the guy who shows up on the doorstep with the big, like novelty size cardboard check from Publishers Clearinghouse holding the balloons. And it's like, great news, you're a millionaire. And it's like, and they scream and whatever, and they hug and, and all that. And people are like crying and no, no, you're crying, right? And it's just, it's this ugly everything, but it's beautiful, right? As this whole celebration ensues. It's never a bad thing to be the guy with the novelty cardboard check, even if it's not your money especially if it's not your money, holding the check and holding the balloons and getting to share that amazing news. That's what the manager is doing in that story. And of course he's saying, as they're going, wow, this is incredible. Thank you so much for delivering such good news. If there's anything that you could ever use from me, don't hesitate to ask. And the manager kind of says, great, I'll keep that in mind in my future endeavors. But that's not the end of the story. A half million dollars isn't the end of the story because in verse 7 he asked, the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. Again, a tremendous amount of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. So a forgiveness of about 200 bushels of wheat. The quantities and the commodity changed from olive oil to wheat, the numbers, all of that. But it's interesting as Jesus is making up this story to share, to, to drive home his point, that he keeps the dollar value about the same. So it's, again, it's about a half a million dollars that he's been forgiven. And so again, the guy doesn't walk out of that meeting where he received the cardboard novelty check and the balloons. He's floating out because he just came in to a windfall of a lifetime. And of course he says, listen, I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for sharing this news with me. Manager, if there's anything that you ever need from me, please don't hesitate to ask. And the manager kind of smiles and winks at him again and says, I'll be sure to keep that in mind with my future endeavors. And you're thinking, oh man, keep in mind, this guy was not giving away his own money. He was giving away his boss's money. How's that guy going to respond? How, how would you respond if somebody just gave away a tremendous amount of your money? Well, what happens, because this is a small town, maybe 100 people, maybe 200, people know each other, small 
Small towns, news travels fast. Some of you grew up in a small time, and it's like you didn't have to go online to hear the latest stuff. You didn't have to check your mail. I mean, you could just hear what the latest is from your neighbor, like because they know more about you and what's happening to you than you know about you and what's happening to you, because that's how quickly news travels in small towns. This small town is no different. A party breaks out, and people are celebrating, and people are happy, and people are partying. And the guy walks up, and there's music blaring, and there's dancing, and there's a fattened calf on the barbecue, because for whatever reason, that's what they always did. And he walks up, and he's like, hey, what are we celebrating? And he goes, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating you. We're celebrating your generosity. You are our guest of honor. And they explain what just happened, and the windfall that changed the economy of this little village forever after. And then he sees his manager over there in the corner. And what does he do? Does he turn down the music? Everybody, there's been a mistake. That was actually not legal, what he did. You all still owe me the money. Nobody wrote any checks, so now there's a late fee applied onto that one. So just uh, hit me back when you can, all right? And the celebration in his honor becomes a grape session in his honor. That's one option. It's probably what I would have done, to be honest. But this guy, I don't have a million dollars either. This guy, verse 8, the master sees the manager, and the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. I'm like, come on, you've got to be kidding me. You see, you see that turkey that just gave away a million of your bucks and you see him and you meet him, not with handcuffs in a squad car, but, but you see him and you, you kind of like high five him and said, huh, you really got me there, didn't you? Huh? What gives? I think the manager, I think he knew something. I think the only explanation for this is that he knew a couple of things about the guy that he had worked for for so long. Namely, that he was a generous landowner and that he was a fair landowner. The prices even, according to first century culture, they were fair prices. I think he knew that his, that his master, this landowner, was fair and generous. After all, he's the guy who says, listen, because you've wasted my money, my possessions earlier on in the story, um, I'm going to fire you, but I want to give you one last opportunity to kind of make your transition and get everything straightened out and then hand the books to me a little bit later on. He's a, he's a generous, albeit optimistic, but, but generous individual owner of this property. And I think the manager knows that the owner has such an incredibly generous heart. And so he goes, this is my plan. I'm going to take everything that I have. I'm going to take all of the influence that I have with others. I'm going to take all of my money, all of my career, my experience. I'm going to take my reputation. I'm going to take everything that I have, and I'm going to push it all in and bank on the generosity and the compassion of that landowner. Because if I know him, I think that I do. In the party, when they're celebrating him, he's not going to turn the music down and say, there's been a mistake. You owe me money with interest and late fees. 
I think what he's going to do is stand there at the center of the party in his honor, and he's simply going to say, you're welcome. And word will never get out that I gave away his money. And that's exactly what happens in the story. As the landowner says, good job. Well done. I commend you. And for Jesus' part, again, he's acknowledging that this was dishonest. But his point in telling the story was to drill home this truth that isn't about how best to manage money or do some accounting. It's dishonest. And he says that. And he's not commending the dishonesty. He's commending the shrewdness of the manager. Jesus explains it in the next line. He says this kind of in, a, in like looking at the whole story. He goes, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. In a sense, he says, I've noticed, right, as walking around, I've noticed that the way the world works, that, that we all kind of get in a real way. But it's like, it's like the people of light, my followers, tend to take everything that they've learned about the world and they just sort of put it on hold or put it in a compartment and they don't apply it to their walk with me or they don't apply it to the truths that I've taught them. And the principle that I think Jesus is, is drilling home here and wants us all to realize and definitely wants his people then and the principle that the people then understood so abundantly clearly is this principle of leverage. Now, the principle of leverage is that you can use a tool or you use a leverage to exert maximum impact with minimal work. Okay, so the people who understand leverage more than anybody else is anybody who works with their hands, anybody who builds things, anybody who repairs things, anybody who uses tools on a regular basis. You guys know how important it is to use leverage. I brought one with me here. You might use one in your car. I'll use this one as an example here. It's just, you know, a simple uh, ratchet. And uh, you, you might, I, I wanted to use a tire iron, but like I went out and I got in my car, in my trunk, and it's just like a can of fix-it flat. And I'm like, no more tire irons. Anyway, FYI, you might not be able to change a tire. Um, okay, so this is, this is how leverage works. You got, you got a lug nut on your, on your wheel, and you might get down there, and if you're trying to like unscrew that lug nut with your bare hands, you're never going to be able to do it because it's taking maximum work with minimal impact. I mean, you're not going to do it. So what you do is you essentially just get a tool like this one, right? Or something bigger, more leverage, more power. And then so you, you, you got to like, like wrench it over and so you can exert this maximum amount of impact with just a minimal amount of work. You guys get how levers work. All right, it's a science lesson. I think some nine is like, yeah, okay. Google like how levers work. You can kind of figure that one out. Jesus is talking about leverage here. People that understand this in the financial world, people who are good with money, they get how leverage works. You buy not like you buy not high when things are red hot or things are expensive. If you want to sell in the short term, you got to buy low and sell. Like four of you got that. Find somebody else to handle your money. It's who understands leverage, right? Buy low and sell high. That's how leverage works. Maximum impact with minimal effort. And Jesus is saying like, everybody, so you guys get this so much. And it's just so prevalent and so common in the world around you. But yet, 
when it comes to this spiritual sense, and Jesus says, the truths that I taught to you about the here and now and about the eternity afterwards, it's almost like you've just totally forgotten this universal principle of leverage and the tools that you have available to you. Jesus finishes it off and he says, this is the tools. I tell you, in verse 9, this is your tool. Use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed to eternal dwellings. I tell you, you have this tool ahead of you. And Jesus names it as worldly wealth. And if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a wealthy individual. I mean, I have a warm place to stay when it gets cold outside. In fact, I've built a little extra house for my car. My car has a house, you know, and then I have so much stuff that I want to keep that sometimes my car gets pushed out into the driveway and my, my car is now homeless because I've taken over my car's house. But, but like, I don't have a lot of financial resources. Like, just as a reminder of some perspective, $32,000 annual income, if you're there this year or if you ever plan to be in your life, puts you in the top 1% of human income earners in the entire world. So use worldly wealth, and we all have it to some level, but I think we can even expand that even more to say, use the influence that you have with other people. Use the time that you have to offer. Use the, the gift sets and the talents that you have at your disposal. Use, in fact, we could expand it even so to say, use your whole life as a tool, as a leverage to change and to impact people's eternities. This is how this works. I heard a story, kind of a parable one time, and someone said there was a guy who lived a, a, a fairly modest life. He was generous with his time and with his treasure, but generally went unnoticed. He wrote his checks to organizations like World Vision or World Mission. He served in his church faithfully. And then one time in old age, in the middle of the night, peacefully, he passed on. And in heaven, he met Jesus. And Jesus said, come on, I want to introduce you to someone, a few people. And one by one, he's introduced to people who are there in heaven that he has never met before. And the people, one by one, explained to him, listen, you wrote a gift, and a missionary took that and was able to tell me about the hope that I can have in Jesus Christ. And he meets an adult, and he says, is it you? I think I remember. And he says, you took the time to tell me about the love of God when I was a restless, squirrely second grader. And you cared about me, and you told me about the love of God. And I believed you. And listen, it changed my eternity. He took what he had in the here and now, and he offered it up as leverage to change, not just the next few years of somebody's life, although that would be something too, wouldn't it? But to change people's eternities. I tell you, the person who got this, I think better than anybody, was that one that we celebrated the birth of not too long ago. And Jesus Christ, and when he told his disciples that he had to suffer and that he had to die, there was objection. No, never, not you. 
I don't know what the life expectancy was in those days, but Jesus, as a 30-something, how could you sacrifice the next 30 years, the next 40 years of your life? Why would you give that up? Jesus, you're just kind of coming right into it now. Why would you give up all of the future? And Jesus says, why would I hold on to what I cannot keep at the expense of investing in what I cannot lose? Jesus is saying, from my perspective, from God's eternal perspective, why would I hang on to the next 30 or the next 40 years of my life when I could use my life as a tool, as leverage to change the eternities of countless people who would put their hope in me? Why would I do that? I mean, church, could you imagine if we did this could you imagine if we as the followers of Jesus did just that and saw everything that we have at our disposal, every bit of time that we have, every bit of giftedness that we have, our whole lives, our whole bodies as leverage tools that we could use to exert maximum kingdom impact in this world with ultimately minimal effort for what we see on the other side, on the eternal side. I don't think we even need to imagine that hard because I think those very first followers of Jesus did that. I think they, they, they did just that as they gathered together in, in a book of Acts that tells us about this bizarre little church where, where, they, where they sold everything and, and they poured it all into the middle and they distributed it to everybody as they had need. And they said, what we have right now is so fleeting and so short. Why would we hold on to it when moth and rust are going to destroy it anyway? Why would we hold on to what we can't keep at the expense of investing in the kingdom, at the expense of investing in what cannot ever be taken away? And as I said before, it was enough to change the world. It was enough so that in a few short hundred years, This Jesus movement had taken such root that it was now being talked about as the official worldview of the Roman Empire. That's the significance and the power of this leverage point that Jesus is talking about. And I know that we are a little bit away from being that Acts 2 kind of church. But I also see God moving here and stirring us here. And I also see these glimpses of it and these visions of it. Now granted, I have a blessed vantage point where I get to hear so many stories and I get to be a part of that incredible life change of God. And so I just want to share some with all of you. And to say, church, 2018, this is a good time to like pause and reflect on the past as we get ready for the future. 2018, we got to tell more kids about the love of God than we've ever have before. 283 different kids checked into our ministry and we got to tell them about Jesus. 376 different people registered for a small group to do life together. 59 new people signed up and said, I want to partner with this church to bring heaven to earth. 24 people showed the world that they've been raised with Christ through adult baptism. 32 people made a new or renewed commitment to patterning their lives 
around Jesus in 2018. And we are so incredibly blessed as we together pour in our time, pour in our giftedness, our talents, pour in our treasure in 2019. And we see how God takes our tools and changes the world. I want to end in that same way that we started off with. With Mary Oliver writing a poem, Summer Day. And she's walking through a field and she's soaking up the natural beauty of it all. And at the same time, she knows how short it is. And she picks up a a grasshopper and she wonders who made the grasshopper. Not grasshoppers, but this grasshopper. And holding it in her hand, she asks that question. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Question, tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Ask for his guidance. Our gracious God, what would you have us do with our one wild and precious life? How would we spend it? How would we spend our time? What would our budgets look like? What would we make time for? What would we read? What would we watch? God, give us the courage this week and in 2019 to ask you more often, God, how would you have us spend this one wild and precious life? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.